Welcome to The Dr. Medic, everyone, where I will do my best to bridge the gap between research and practice and the world of helicopter EMS and all of paramedicine. Catch the full effect of these podcasts with all the visuals over on YouTube, but for now, let's get started. A survival flight Bell 407 is flying across Southern Ohio in the early hours of the morning. The crew are on their way to pick up a sick patient at a hospital when disaster strikes and the helicopter impacts the hilly terrain, killing everyone on board. You know, this story will involve far more than the actual cause of the accident. The contributing factors are shocking, and some people would say that they're simply unbelievable. The full story coming up on this episode of The Dr. Medic. Now, it's important to remind everyone of the purpose of this channel, which is to learn, to discover the mistakes that others have made and apply those lessons so that we don't make the same mistakes moving forward. This isn't just a story about a crash. Three people lost their lives in this accident. Three people who dedicated their lives to helping others and doing so for chump change because this is the career that they love and because they wanted to have a positive impact on others. And many of these crashes are preventable, which is why we really don't call call them accidents because accidents are not preventable. Crashes are. And lastly, there are now almost 1,500 medical helicopters in the United States alone and every single pilot and every paramedic and every nurse and respiratory therapist and physician who flies on these aircraft are doing so because they care about other people. They deserve to have a clear understanding of how previous crashes may have occurred so that they and their operators can have the opportunity to learn from the past and be safer. With that being said, let's get started. You know, I never really knew much about survival flight before researching this incident. They do have some bases here in my home state of Oklahoma, and I do remember being in a state meeting about six years ago, and someone introduced themselves as being from survival flight, and they were just starting service in Oklahoma the next day. And then three days later, they had an actual crash down in Lawton, Oklahoma. But then, a few years after that, they put this beautiful Sikorsky S-76 just down the street from my office, and I thought that this was great because giant twin-engine medical helicopters are always cool, and they even let Mrs. Dr. Medic sit in and take a picture. Anyway, the operator for this crash is actually called Viking Aviation, and they have several different business ventures in the aviation world, with one being their medical transport service called Survival Flight. Their venture actually began back in Arizona, but then relocated to the Midwest, with their headquarters being in Batesville, Arkansas, and with rotor wing bases in Missouri, Arkansas, Illinois, Oklahoma, Ohio, and with recent expansions into the southeast of part of the country in Alabama, Tennessee, Georgia, and now even Florida. Now, the accident helicopter was actually at one of two bases in Ohio, but as of the time of this recording and according to Survival Flight's website, both of those bases in Ohio are no longer listed. Also, I did reach out to Survival Flight several times during my research for this story and did not receive any type of reply from them at all. They currently have about 20 bases and had 15 bases at the time of this accident. They had around 70 pilots at the time with over 100 flight nurses and flight paramedics on board as well. Their fleet was made up of three Bell 206 Long Rangers, 13 Bell 407s, a single Sikorsky S-76, and a beautiful Pilatus PC-12. Their flight operations control center is located in Batesville, Arkansas, and is a Part 135 requirement due to their fleet being larger than 10 aircraft. The Operational Control Center, or OCS, or for the purpose of this story, I'm just going to call them dispatch, was usually staffed with a single dispatcher as well as an Operational Control Manager, or OCM. This dispatcher exists to field the incoming flight requests from ground EMS crews and hospitals, and then dispatch those requests to the appropriate bases while at the same time providing a level of oversight to the flight side of things by monitoring weather, tracking flights, and assisting pilots with anything else that they might need. At the time, Survival Flight was not accredited by the Commission on Accreditation for Medical Transport Systems, otherwise known as CAMES, and they still are not accredited today. 
The location of this crash occurred in a very heavily saturated market for EMS helicopters and survival flight had not really established themselves in this area yet. The accident helicopter itself was a Bell 407 manufactured in 1996 with a single Rolls-Royce 250C47B turbine engine and a total of 1179 hours on the airframe. Avionics were awesome and included a radar altimeter and a dual Garmin GTN 650 system, a Garmin GT500H, and helicopter terrain awareness warning system, otherwise known as HTAWS. Also included were a Garmin GTS 800 traffic collision avoidance system and a Garmin GTX 345R transponder. The helicopter did not have a cockpit voice recorder or a flight data recorder, but it did contain an in-cabin audio recorder, which will become very important later on in this story. It did not have an autopilot system and it was not certified for instrument flight. The pilot in this accident was named Jennifer and she was 34 years old and held a commercial pilot certificate with helicopter and instrument ratings as well as a private pilot certificate with ratings for airplane, single engine, land, and instrument airplane. She was also a certified helicopter flight instructor and held a second class medical certificate with no limitations. She had been employed with survival flight for about seven months at the time of the crash and at the time of her hire she had a total of 1,855 flight hours with 589 in turbine and 1125 in piston helicopters. She did not have any flight time in the Bell 407 when she was hired and she did not complete her proficiency and competency checks in the Bell 407. Instead, it was done in a Bell 206L3 and then she was cleared to fly the Bell 407 while only having to complete ground training and differences. She did not complete any in-flight training in the Bell 407, which was the accident aircraft. Now, for the six days before the accident, she had been working day shifts from 0700 to 1900, and on the day before the accident, she ended her shift around 1730. According to her fiance, she spent the evening at home and had planned to arrive earlier than normal on the day of the accident to relieve the evening shift pilot since he had arrived earlier than normal the night before to relieve her. Now, the weather at the time of the accident was a bit unpredictable, as it always is in the most rural parts of the United States. The farther you get away from heavily populated areas, the less weather reporting stations there are and the less pilot reports or PIREPs exist as well. This all leads to much less information for any pilot wishing to file any form of VFR plan as they have to ensure that they are not putting themselves into a position where they might find themselves in inadvertent meteorological conditions. If you are unsure of the differences between VFR, IFR, VMC, and IMC, then check out a few of my previous videos to get caught up. Either way, the forecasts were showing marginal VFR conditions at the accident site with overcast cloud ceilings of 2,200 feet with a 30 to 60% chance of snow, along with a winter weather advisory showing rapidly falling temperatures, flash freeze conditions, scattered snow showers, and up to an inch of snow accumulation possible. There were also several pie reps of reported ice and snow in the area. Now on January 29th, 2019, an ER tech at Holzer Meggs Hospital in Pomeroy, Ohio, was told to set up a transfer for a patient from their hospital to Ohio Health Riverside Methodist in Columbus, Ohio. This ER tech then picks up the phone and calls their go-to flight service, MedFlight. MedFlight takes just a few moments and then advises that they cannot take the flight due to weather. Later, this MedFlight pilot stated that he turned down the flight due to weather, quote, specifically icing probability at 1,000 feet above the ground of greater than 75%, and there were snow squalls present that would reduce visibility and or ceilings to below minimums. In our area, these snow squalls don't always show up on radar. So, the ER tech. She then calls their second go-to helicopter, HealthNet. HealthNet says that they need to consult real quick for a full weather check and they will let her know in just a few minutes. But prior to hearing back from HealthNet, she then picks up the phone and calls their newest helicopter partner, Survival Flight. The nursing manager for the ER stated that they have been calling Survival Flight lately specifically because Survival Flight gave her a flyer that amongst other items states that they have different weather minimums than the competition and that if they cannot fly, 
call survival flight, and they will try. Now, this flyer has certainly been the subject of much debate and was discovered by the NTSB during their investigation. It seemed very difficult to actually track down who created this flyer, who approved it, and what exactly it means. You see, weather minimums are a big part of any Part 135 program, and even more so when the program only flies VFR, meaning that they can only fly when they can see a certain distance visually out of the helicopter. These minimums are usually split into a few categories and may be a bit different depending on if the flight is flown during the day or night, if the terrain is mountainous or not, and even if they are flying a local flight or what they call a cross-country flight, which is really not across the country, but really just means that they are flying outside of their coverage area. So, for instance, the FAA minimums for a medical helicopter flying locally during the day in non-mountainous terrain would be 800-foot cloud ceilings with at least two miles of visibility. Now, the accreditor for medical helicopters in the United States is Kames, right? But contrary to popular belief, they do not have higher minimums than the FAA, and they actually state that helicopter EMS programs must at least meet the FAA minimums, but they also may exceed the minimums if they should choose to do so, and that they strongly encourage to exceed the minimums for any new pilots or pilots who are filling in at another base. Most, if not all, CAMES accredited programs across the country have actually adopted stricter minimums on their own just to add an extra layer of protection to that infamous Swiss cheese model of safety. Now, with MedFlight, the hospital's go-to service in this incident, they had adopted weather minimums of an absolute minimum of 1,000 feet ceilings and three miles visibility across the board no matter what. So, who created this flyer? Well, flight nurse Robin Piott, who was the clinical base lead at the other Ohio survival flight base, said that she created it. Robin said she developed this flyer and then consulted with the clinical base lead of the accident base, Amanda, who then sought and obtained approval from one of the survival flight's VPs, with final approval coming from the PR and marketing manager, Rachel Millard, who is also the daughter of the primary owner of the company, Christopher Millard. However, during interviews, Rachel stated that the first time that she had seen the card was on social media after the accident. Gary Mercer, who we will come to find out an awful lot about later on in this story, is the director of operations for all of survival flight and is literally in charge of everything, including the aviation side of the business. He said during interviews that he had never seen or heard of this flyer and that the first time he was made aware of it was when the NTSB investigators shared it with him. Now, it is quite common for private EMS helicopters to spend a lot of time doing public relations events and marketing. They do this because in the United States, with very few exceptions, helicopter EMS cannot be state regulated and is really only regulated by the FAA, which is federal. This means that in most cases, there is no requirement as to which helicopter shows up to pick up patients. It really boils down to the relationships that local fire departments, local EMS agencies, law enforcement, and especially local hospitals, it boils down to the relationships that they have with the local helicopter services. Many helicopter EMS, otherwise known as HEMS, many HEMS services do all that they can do to get these people to call them for the flight. Now this is true for 911 calls and vehicle accidents and burns and hospital to hospital patient transfers. Usually, most of these HEMS companies sell themselves as the better choice based on things like having a premier clinical team of highly qualified paramedics or nurses. Maybe they have a bigger helicopter with more capabilities. Maybe they can operate IFR flights when the competition cannot. Maybe they carry blood. Or maybe they just preach a high level of safety and professionalism. This flyer sells none of those things. In fact, one could make the argument that it actually preaches the opposite. And obviously, the most striking part of this flyer is the fact that Survival Flight was advertising that even though they did not have an IFR-capable aircraft anywhere in Ohio, that they could somehow accept flights in lower minimums than the competition. And if you think that this flyer is the problem, you'd be wrong. Because as you will see, this flyer is just a single visible example of a culture that would support such a flyer in the first place. So, Back to the ER tech. MedFlight has now turned her down for weather and HealthNet is doing a weather check. And while waiting for the weather check, the ER tech calls Survival Flight who immediately accepts the flight. A few moments later, HealthNet actually does call back and says that they are gonna refuse the flight due to weather. So 
who accepted the flight? Well, the accepting pilot's name was Wally, and he had been on shift since about 5.30 or 6 o'clock the night before as he came in a bit early to cover for Jennifer, the accident pilot. Wally was slated to get off at 0700 the morning of January 29th, but expected Jennifer to probably show up a bit earlier since he had shown up a bit earlier for her the night before. According to the reports, the med crew at this base works 24-hour shifts, and they do their shift change at 10 a.m., which means they would have been sleeping when this call came in. So, the call from their dispatch comes in at 0609 and Wally answers the phone. He checks the weather, primarily using the HEMS tool, and he tells investigators that what he saw was he saw a modified VFR with ceilings around 2,400 feet and about 7 miles visibility, both which are well within the weather minimums to fly VFR. But, during interviews, Wally didn't seem very confident in what the precipitation was showing along the same flight path, stating, quote, and then on the precip side, I wasn't really... I wasn't really seeing anything. Now, helicopters can certainly still fly in precipitation, including rain and snow, but only so long as they are not exceeding the limitations of the aircraft, and more importantly, that they can still meet the visibility requirements, which in this case would need to be at least a few miles. But even the chief pilot for survival flight, Jack Wine, acknowledged that there were reports of snow squalls in the area. And snow squalls are intense and usually shortened periods of moderate to heavy snowfall accompanied by strong, gusty surface winds and possibly lightning. They are certainly a hazard and not something that you would want to file a VFR flight plan through. The reports of snow squalls were documented through PIREPS, but the accepting pilot mentioned that he did not check those and wasn't aware of any forecast for snow. And ice, which is also a hazard for aircraft, was also forecast in the area from basically about 8,000 feet down to about 2,000 feet, but Wally also said that he did not recall seeing any advisories for ice, even though they did exist and were available to him, and also available to the operational control specialist or dispatcher who is supposed to be assisting the pilots with weather information. The dispatcher also stated that they primarily only rely on the HEMS tool, but even if Wally had seen the ICE advisory, he said that at survival flight, they just ignore those advisories and go and fly anyway, stating that, quote, we still go and fly, but you just, in order to prevent icing, you have to stay out of visible moisture. You're not going to get iced up in clear air down in the surface where we fly, so it's not unusual for us to accept flights, even though an AirMet Zulu covers our area, which we just stay out of visible moisture. In short, Wally is saying that it is okay to take off and see what happens and try and stay out of bad weather. Throughout the nearly 2,000 pages of documentation and interviews, it is very easy to see that this is a common theme across all of survival flight, where if they have questionable weather, that they will just take off and try to get to the patient, and if they run into some bad weather, they will just find a way to turn around. Many pilots echoed that this was commonplace, and there were many stories of pilots flying into IMC conditions and then having to declare an emergency and turn around. It all seemed quite matter of fact and commonplace. In a VFR aircraft without an autopilot, with a medical crew and possibly a patient in the back, and with very little recurrent training on double IMC, this is an absolute recipe for disaster. It is very common for HEMS agencies that fly VFR only to only accept a flight if the weather is obviously safe and clear and within minimums for all legs of the flight, including getting to the patient, transporting that patient to the hospital, and then getting back to the base. At survival flight, it was documented that the philosophy was to, quote, fly as close to the weather minimum as possible and try and take every single flight no matter what. So, Wally accepts the flight, but he was not told that another service or two had already turned down the flight for weather. But I do not really think that that would have mattered for several reasons. One, the flyer clearly states that survival flight's philosophy was to take flights exactly like this because they can somehow accomplish these flights that other services cannot. And two, and far more upsetting to learn about, is the practice of reverse helicopter shopping. We probably know what helicopter shopping is, right? If not, for a detailed explanation, you can check out my video on the Regional One crash for a pretty in-depth chat about it. The ER tech in this story, 
Unbeknownst to them, definitely was helicopter shopping. But in short, helicopter shopping is where someone, which could be a dispatcher, could be a sending physician or a nurse or an ER tech, or even could be a receptionist, or even a ground provider like ambulances and fire trucks, when they keep calling different helicopters to take their patient, even though they keep refusing for weather. Now, in all fairness, most of the time when this happens, the caller is really unaware of how all of this works and all they care about is just getting someone to come get their critical patient. But when the stakes are this high, I no longer believe that ignorance is a good excuse for this. All HEMS providers have a duty and should be educating the people who request them to avoid the practice at all costs. And to their credit, some of them, and probably most of them do, but in this case, survival flight clearly was telling their requesters the opposite. They have even said to call them, even if other services refuse, call them and they can make it work. That is called helicopter shopping. If that wasn't bad enough, along comes reverse helicopter shopping. Now, there is a wonderful resource out there that exists called weatherturndown.com. This website was actually created by AirMed, which is an air ambulance service out of Alabama, in order to provide a resource to pilots and dispatchers who are doing weather checks to inform them of whether or not another service has already turned down a flight. This is an amazing resource and is 100% free and is used by hundreds of flight programs across the United States. If a pilot gets a call request, they can go to this website to see if another agency has turned it down already, and more times than not, this will just be another level of confirmation that they should not accept the flight. But that is not what Survival Flight was using it for. Survival Flight dispatchers would actually monitor this website, and when they would see a weather turndown, they would pick up the phone and call the requester, usually a hospital, and ask them if they ever got anyone to take the flight. If the hospital said they never found anyone and the patient was still there, Survival Flight would attempt to find one of their helicopters to transport that patient even if that helicopter was extremely far away or had to fly really far around weather just to get to the patient. And if they found a helicopter that could do the flight, the dispatcher would not inform the pilot that they just reversed helicopter shop this flight. So would it have mattered if Wally knew that the other services had turned down the flight? Based on the history at survival flight, probably not. In fact, it may have been more of a factor to actually take the flight. Wally was even quoted as saying that he doesn't pay much attention to other companies turning down flights on weatherturndown.com and that he believes these other companies are actually out of service and just say they're available so they can purposely turn down flights and boost their numbers. Now, remember, it is 0609 and Wally is expecting Jennifer, the day pilot, to come in a bit early for him since he came in early the night before. So he picks up the phone and calls Jennifer on her cell phone while she is driving. This was actually an interesting point in one of the interviews as the pilot is admitting to the National Transportation Safety Board that he called Jennifer on her cell phone knowing that she was driving a car. The NTSB even went out of their way to point out in the report that they highly advise against such practices. Anyway, he briefs her on the flight in general and seems to tell her that she should take the flight. He did not brief her on the weather at all. He asks her if she wants the night vision goggles, and for some reason, she says no. Now, the helipad at this base is not right out in front of the living quarters, and the pilot and medical crew typically need to jump in a vehicle and drive maybe about a half mile or so to get to the actual aircraft. So, Wally wakes up the med crew, and the three of them drive down to the aircraft and get ready for the flight. Jennifer shows up a few minutes later and grabs her gear and helmet and goes straight to the pilot seat where Wally has already started up the helicopter, which is sitting there waiting for her. Jennifer immediately jumps in the seat and gets ready to go. Apparently, they call this hot seating. I had never heard this term, but that's what they call it. So she doesn't check weather and she does not pre-flight the aircraft and she does not complete their risk assessment form. Jennifer and Wally do not really say much to each other and Wally clocks out and heads home and goes to sleep. Jennifer takes off with the medical crew and starts to head towards Holzer Meg's hospital to pick up their patient. Now, just after takeoff, the survival flight dispatcher calls Jennifer on the helicopter radio and asks for a flight release. Now the flight release is that risk assessment or RA form I told you about and this RA form is 
usually done at the beginning of each shift and is a safety check to highlight risks to better inform the pilot and dispatch of their overall risk for that day. In all honesty, most services actually do an RA for each flight, but Survival Flight only did one for each shift. This worksheet has nearly 40 lines on it and each asks a question that needs to be answered. There are four sections to Survival Flight's RA form, weather, aircraft status, personnel and human factors, and what kind of flight they will be doing. It takes more than a few minutes to get through this sheet and cannot be completed in just a few seconds. Weather has to be checked. Pre-flight has to be completed. Discussion with the rest of the crew, including the medical crew, needs to take place to verify overall sleep, exhaustion, and stress levels. Once the form is completed, there are four levels of risk that can be documented. Green, which means they will take all flight requests for that day without question. Amber, which means they will probably need to check weather. Amber critical, which means there could be some form of delay. And red, which means they will not take any flight requests at all and won't even be dispatched. But Jennifer didn't have time to get any of that information because she jumped right in the helicopter and took off. Even though she did not pre-flight the aircraft, did not check weather, and did not have any time to chat with her crew, just moments after taking off, she tells dispatch that they are all green and that they have taken the flight. Now, the accident site was showing modified VFR with around three miles of visibility and light snow. These are right on the limits of the minimums, and don't forget that Jennifer for some reason said that she did not want the night vision goggles even though it was still completely dark out. Now, post-flight analysis shows that they traveled southeast for about 22 minutes at about 3,000 feet MSL at about 120 to 140 knots. And over the next 10 minutes, it shows that the aircraft descended down about 1,000 feet and then climbed again all the way up to 2,600 feet, and it was at this time that the aircraft encountered the first of two snow bands. A few minutes later at 0647, they encountered the second snow band and they now descend about another 500 feet and pull up for a bit and then descend again another 900 feet as the aircraft is flying through the second snow band. Now, just after this encounter with the second snow band, Jennifer turns the aircraft consistent with a 180 degree descending left-hand turn, possibly indicating that she had encountered double IMC conditions or maybe just that she was aborting the flight and heading home. And during the entire turn, the aircraft continued to slowly descend. Towards the end of this 180 degree turn, while still descending, the aircraft impacted a tree-covered hill. There were no survivors. The pilot, Jennifer, the flight nurse, Rachel Cunningham, and the flight paramedic, Bradley Haynes, were all killed. Now, examination of the accident site revealed that the helicopter initially collided with a tree at a height of about 30 feet above the ground on a heading of about 345 degrees. The wreckage path was then strewn over 600 feet and there was no evidence of a post-crash fire, but there was a strong smell of fuel noted. Now, the final satellite and ECU data show that as the helicopter descended, Two overtorque events occurred about eight and three seconds respectively right before the end of the recorded data. The overtorque events correlated with the increases in the collective position which could be consistent with the pilot responding to either an HTAWS alert or perceived imminent ground contact or both by attempting to pull power at the last minute and climb. This scenario on its surface unfortunately does not seem that strange. You have a medical helicopter that probably encountered double IMC and then due to a lack of regular recurrent training, flies the aircraft straight into the ground. It has happened dozens of times in the past, with the NTSB usually concluding as much. But in this case, there's far more to this story and there is far more to the cause. By all accounts, every single mention and interview regarding Jennifer shows that not only was she a wonderful human being, but she was one of the more safety-oriented pilots with survival flight and was certainly no pushover. But if this is the case, then why would she take this flight? and not do a pre-flight, and not check the weather, and rattle off an RA release without actually doing it, and then subsequently fly the aircraft right into the ground. Well, as always, there's a story to be told, and let's dig in. As with most organizations, a culture of safety and reporting and learning all come from the top. With Survival Flight, Christopher Millard is the primary owner and it was commonplace for Christopher to see and hear all flight requests for Survival Flight 
all across the country. Some survival flight pilots stated that they always felt like they were walking on eggshells when it came to flight requests and that they never felt comfortable leaning towards safety when it came to documenting their RA status or turning down flights for weather. Early on, if and when they tried to put the aircraft out of service for a safety issue or turn down flights for weather, several of them reported that Chris would immediately call them at the base and yell at them for not taking the flight or demanding that the aircraft be listed as green or amber even though it was out of service. It didn't take long though for Christopher Millard, the owner, to then turn over most operational control of this company over to the director of operations, Gary Mercer. Let's come back to Gary a little bit later though. Now, in a true just culture that embraces safety and reporting, pilots and med crew are all involved in flight decisions and if and when a decision is made to turn down a flight or put an aircraft out of service, there are absolutely no questions asked. This is done so that everyone involved has a sense of safety that they can safely speak up without the fear of retaliation and report literally anything that they feel is unsafe or even if they are just unsure of something. And when dealing with an actual flight, all of the crew members have an equal say as to whether or not they turn down the flight or abort. If a nurse is on her fourth flight of the day, even though the weather is great and everyone else is ready to go, if she feels her fatigue and exhaustion are a safety issue, then she can turn down the flight or abort a flight that's already in progress with no questions asked. If a paramedic is in the air and he sees clouds that he does not like or gets an uneasy feeling about the weather, he can say abort the flight and the pilot will say, no problem, and they will abort the flight, no questions asked. If a pilot feels that an aircraft is too close to a maintenance interval to take another flight, they can call their mechanic, get the maintenance started, and take the aircraft out of service with no questions asked. This is all a part of the common saying that you've probably heard of three to go and one to stay. In order for this philosophy to safely take place, they must utilize crew resource management and they must be able to exist in a just culture where they feel there is no fear of retaliation. Crew Resource management is now required on all major airlines and is also required of all EMS helicopters in the United States who are CAMES accredited. Now I have to point out that I have never seen in an investigation that goes this deep into the culture of a helicopter EMS agency. The NTSB interviewed 23 personnel, including pilots, mechanics, dispatchers, nurses, paramedics, executives, FAA personnel, hospital personnel, and it is important to note that they interviewed both former and current survival flight employees. So did the pilots at survival flight feel like they worked in a just culture of safety and, and reporting? The actual director of safety and training of survival flight said that the safety culture at survival flight was pretty good. However, he also knew that pilots were not comfortable reporting safety issues to management. Another pilot stated that there was a bad vibe at the accident base, which is base 14. Another former pilot stated that it would be quote, difficult to report to management that management is unsafe. I feel that's a wall that, you know, would be difficult to punch through. And a current pilot reported, I like my job, I like the people I work with, but you get the sense that you're gonna be blackballed, you know, if you go against them. Another pilot who was a former Marine pilot who flew for survival flight out of Oklahoma stated that medical crew from other bases brought safety concerns to him about other pilots. He basically took the stance in the interviews that since the paramedic and the nurse are not pilots, that he really cannot take their concerns any further and then he cannot really help them. When talking about them not being pilots, he stated that, quote, I mean, they're not, you know, they are by no means meteorologists and they are not pilots, but they are not dumb individuals. He seemed frustrated when the medical crew complained that the dispatch manager forced the aircraft to remain amber, even though it was out of service and with the mechanic. When asked what his biggest issue was with survival flight, he stated that it was their competition, MedFlight. He felt that MedFlight was going out of their way to make things difficult, especially when MedFlight apparently complained about survival flight flying under lower minimum. This pilot's response, I've been doing this for five years and felt I could speak for myself that flying to lower minimums does not equate to less safety. The same pilot, when asked about anonymous reporting in a safety culture, said that he supports the reporting, but also he feels that people abuse the reporting under the guise of safety. Another pilot mentioned that things were good when he started at survival flight, but then when he moved to Ohio, there was a huge push to get numbers and was even told that their flight volume was, quote, was going to go to 150 flights a month. I can tell you now that 30 to 45 
five flights is a massive amount of flights and 150 anywhere in the world is just simply astronomical and unrealistic, especially in a heavily competitive area like Ohio. He said that survival flight management told him that they should have a lift time of just five minutes and that he was constantly challenged when turning down flights for safety or weather. He even stated that one time the helicopter got stuck in a hangar during weather and that they were IFR, but the owner's daughter called him and demanded that he get the helicopter back to the base simply for the visual effect of having the helicopter sitting on the pad. There was a common theme among many of the interviews regarding a major safety issue with one pilot named Kevin Johnson, or KJ, who was Jennifer's direct supervisor. There was a situation where one pilot tried to report KJ's unsafe flying and that the chief pilot for survival flight actually called him up and yelled at him and told him that here at survival flight, you never tell on another pilot. It was reported by at least one pilot and two medical crew members that KJ would get so mad during a flight that a nurse expressed a safety concern because they had flown into double IMC. When they got back to the base, KJ told the crew that he would wait for a clear day and then fly them up into a cloud to make them feel better. The pet crew, not knowing that this was wrong and completely against the law, agreed. It wasn't until Jennifer caught wind of this that a stop was put to it. There were some pilots who flat out said that they disregard whatever the med crew were saying about flying into weather. And there were also some pilots who flat out said that they disregard whatever the medical crew were saying about flying into weather. Another former survival flight pilot described an example in which a helicopter experienced a hot start that required an engine inspection. Management refused to allow the inspection and as a result, the mechanic threatened to quit. When management finally agreed to the inspection to keep that mechanic on staff, the engine was found to be completely damaged. But then you talk to pilots at other bases such as down at Lawton, Oklahoma, and they state that they embrace the three to go and one to stay and that they fully embrace CRM. In short, there seem to be two groups of pilots in these interviews those that embrace crew resource management and express lots of concerns about management pressuring them into taking flights, pressuring them into changing their RA status, and complaining about management ignoring the med crew and their opinions. With the other group sounding like a bunch of cowboys who are bragging about pushing the limits of weather, regularly flying into double IMC and taking the mindset that they will simply accept every flight and then attempt the flight and then simply turn around if things got bad. I cannot tell you how many reports there were in these interviews from all crew members about aborting flights right before they got into bad weather or double IMC, and there was even at least one story of double IMC occurring, and then it wasn't even reported. Now, on the medical side, with the paramedics and the nurses, the interviews make it sound like the nurses and the paramedics, especially in Ohio, were literally walking around nervous all day that someone was going to pressure them into taking flights that they did not want to take, or yelling at them, or demeaning them, or even sexually harassing them. One flight nurse tells a story about expressing concerns about the weather during flight and the pilot just ignored her and pressed on. She even complained to her direct supervisor and was ignored. And she confirmed that the medical crew is not involved in any weather discussion. She even mentioned that the pilot KJ would get so emotional during flight debriefs that he would yell and cuss at the medical crew for any mistakes that they would have made. Another very experienced paramedic stated how nervous she was all the time and that the last time she complained about a pilot's dangerous actions, she was actually written up and placed on a performance improvement plan. Another nurse tells the story of a pilot who turned down a flight for weather. Gary Mercer, that director of operations I told you about, immediately calls the base to tell the pilot to take the flight. The nurse refuses due to weather and Gary Mercer then gets on the phone with her and yells at her so badly that she starts crying. And in short, many of the medical crew members at survival flight, especially in Ohio, simply felt unsafe. And then when they complained, they felt like no one listened and sometimes even worse that they would be the ones to get in trouble. In fact, Rachel Cunningham, the flight nurse who was killed in this accident, actually sent an official email to her base supervisor, Amanda, complaining about KJ and other pilots. She complained about derogatory comments made towards the female flight nurses in their outfits and their flight suit, getting yelled at for expressing concern about turning down flights for bad weather, witnessing a pilot bragging during a PR event with local fire department that he could land on a helicopter pad of 40 by 40 when the norm is normally 100 by 100, Two separate events where pilots would perform extreme maneuvers in the aircraft while pretending to avoid a bird for the sole purpose of scaring the medical crew, and another pilot taking off on purpose even though the paramedic told him to hold on because his seatbelt wasn't on yet. Out of the 23 current and former employees that were interviewed, 11 of them reported that pilots were pressured to take flights. So. 
how could this be happening? In this day and age, with all of this technology that we have and all of the science and all of the data, we know that a safety culture and CRM saves lives. So how could this be taking place and on such a large scale? Well, I said I would come back to Gary Mercer, Director of Operations, and now here we are. It is absolutely poor practice to incentivize flight crews to take flights. You cannot pay them bonuses or stipends or reward them for having more flights each month, as this will obviously place them in a position to accept flights when they would otherwise turn them down. Well, Survival Flight had a program where any base that reached 30 flights would get one of these top-of-the-line massage chairs for their base. It was documented that several bases even had a countdown chart to 30, and the accident base where Jennifer worked was at 26 for the month. During interviews, Gary Mercer stated that Survival Flight never incentivizes their employees. When asked about taking flights in bad weather, he seemed to imply that there's always a way to accept flights if you just get smart and learn to take the right route. He also seems to think that so long as the weather is reported as a thousand foot ceilings and three miles of visibility, that double IMC could never happen. He stated, quote, it is impossible to go inadvertent IMC if the weather is a thousand feet and three can't happen. When asked about the weather minimums that Survival Flight has, he said that Survival Flight doesn't have any weather minimums and that they only fly to the FAA minimums and seem to insinuate that they would fly in either lower minimums than the current FAA standards if somehow they were allowed to do so. When pressed by the NTSB investigators about possibly raising their standards to meet CAME standards, he stated, quote, the problem with CAMES, in my view, besides it being an air methods run program, you know, in my view, only my view, it's their program, it's tied to them, we are a little different from them. And again, well, never mind, it's a tender subject. But here is one of the big kickers. And when reading the transcripts, it almost feels like when Jack Nicholson said that you can't handle the truth. It felt like Gary just wanted to get this off of his chest. When asked if the paramedic and nurse are a part of the crew, Gary stated, quote, oh, you don't want to go down that road. The problem is we can't call them crew, the crew, I mean, the people in the back, because it's really hard not to call them that because it's a partnership. No one wants, everyone wants to succeed. And so the people in the back, anytime they can help, well, by all means, help is, is taken. But then Gary was pressed immediately after that by another NTSB investigator about CAME standards and the medical crew and said, quote, it's a CAMES thing. It's their attempt to create an environment by which everyone felt more equal in the decision-making process. And the thing that I, the problem I have with CAMES as far as how they come at it is they're asking people without the skill set to make decisions that they really don't understand. Aviation decisions. So then what? I want to have the pilot go and give them advice on how to intubate a patient? End quote. Well, I agree that pilots should not be telling nurses or paramedics how to intubate. But... The fallacy with that stupid argument is that if the paramedic screws up the intubation, the aircraft doesn't crash and kill everyone on board. He continues on though. What I am saying is that people spend some fair amount of time and effort to become a meteorologist, to become a pilot, to become whatever. And then someone walks in without any of those skill sets and now they have an equal place at the table to make those decisions? I struggle with that. I don't want a pilot doing an intubation not trained to. I don't want a nurse making a weather decision because she's not trained to." End quote. Remember, this is the director of operations and is in control of all of the day-to-day -day operations at Survival Flight. Well, maybe that is just one person's opinions, but what about the chief pilot for all of Survival Flight? His name is Jack Wine and was asked the same question about the paramedic and nurse being a part of the crew. His answer? They're not. They're not part of the crew. They're medical personnel. Yeah, they're not part of the crew. Yeah, they're not flight crew. Every pilot at Survival Flight reports to Jack, and his stance is clear that the paramedic and nurse are not a part of the crew. Well, as you can see, Survival Flight, at least at the time of the accident, was in an absolute disarray in terms of safety and reporting. Some of their pilots were unsafe and regularly pushed the weather limit. Other pilots were quite safe and cautious, but were scorned and admonished for doing so. Even though Survival Flight preached three to go and one to stay, medical crew were not considered part of the crew and their opinions meant absolutely nothing. And even if and when they did report something, it fell on deaf ears or came back to them in a retaliatory fashion. All of this is happening while the dispatchers are reverse helicopter shopping, the PR folks are dropping off flyers and stating that they can fly when others cannot, and the company 
company is incentivizing bases to complete as many flights as possible by luring them with a massage chair. The NTSB obviously quickly discovers all of this and releases a chairman's factual report hinting at this while also noting that the pilot obviously must have encountered inadvertent instrument conditions leading her to make her 180 degree turn to the left. The snow squalls were in post-accident analysis, two other services had turned it down, and PIREPs were reporting snow. But this factual report did not sit well with survival flight. You see, when doing an investigation after one of these accidents, the NTSB usually completes some form of joint investigation with representatives from the NTSB, FAA, the operator, in this case survival flight, the manufacturer, in this case Bell, and a host of others. When doing so, all parties typically sign some form of non-disclosure agreement that says that they will not comment publicly until the investigation is over. Even more, during a federal investigation, Part 49 CFR 831.13 of the Federal Code actually prohibits any unauthorized personnel, quote, from providing opinions or analysis of the accident outside of the participants in the investigation. Survival Flight did sign this agreement on January 31st, yet Survival Flight went on to publicly state that all of the interviews were simply a bunch of disgruntled employees, that the weather was great, and that something must have hit the aircraft, causing it to crash. Yeah, about that something that they claim hit the aircraft. Remember, this crash happened in January of 2019. The final report did not come out until May of 2020. Following claims were made by Survival Flight after the factual report was published in September of 2019. Survival Flight argued that they were left out of the investigation even though it is documented that Survival Flight personnel were present during interviews and other sessions. They claim that the interviews are all BS because they are all just disgruntled former employees. Survival Flight claimed that even though it is well known that they reverse helicopter shopped, that this practice was irrelevant since they did not actually reverse helicopter shop on this accident. They claimed that a bird must have hit the aircraft even though there is no evidence to support it. They claimed that the NTSB report has caused them to lose business in Ohio and Oklahoma City and that hospitals and customers are reaching out to Survival Flight to complain about the culture and the report. They complain that they can no longer find employees who are willing to work for them. They claim that pressuring pilots to take flights is irrelevant in this case because in this case, no one actually called and pressured Jennifer to take the flight. Survival Flight says that there is no evidence that weather had any causal impact on the accident, even though there is a plethora of evidence to show that while visibility and ceilings were showing within limits, that there were documented reports of icing and snow squalls in the area. Survival Flight claims that the NTSB should not even bring up the fact that Jennifer was only trained in a Bell 206 and not a Bell 407, because deep down somewhere hidden in the paperwork, and even though it was a bad idea, technically it was allowed. Survival Flight addresses the controversial flyer and defends its use because the other accredited programs actually do have higher minimums, so therefore there was nothing wrong with what Survival Flight did with that flyer. Survival Flight claims that because Jennifer was an amazing and qualified pilot, and that because the aircraft had such great technology in the cockpit, that it is inconceivable that she could not have performed an exit from a double IMC with ease. Really? Then why has it happened so many times in the past? What about the Regional One crash? What about Kobe's crash? What about dozens of others? All the technology in the world cannot counteract a retaliatory culture and a poor training environment. So, Survival Flight is unhappy with the federal investigation. So what do they do? They do their own investigation. And boy, is this investigation a peach. Survival Flight does not contest that this was a controlled flight into terrain. But they add that this controlled flight into terrain was the result of the pilot being incapacitated in some manner due to a noise that they heard on the audio recording. Remember I told you at the beginning that while there is not a cockpit voice recorder, but, but that there was a cockpit audio recorder, about six seconds before the final impact, there was a unique noise that was heard and then continued through the entire six seconds until the aircraft crashed. The NTSB did detailed forensic analyses of this sound and concluded that while they cannot confirm exactly what the sound is, that they described the sound as a whining sound, potentially aerodynamic in nature, something like air running across the top of a bottle or one of the crew members opening a window. This is a Bell 407 and it certainly seems plausible that if they encountered double IMC that the pilot or one of the crew maybe slid open a window which is quite common on this aircraft. But I cannot be sure and neither can the NTSB. But somehow survival flight says that they are sure that not only is this sound not a window sliding open, that it must have been associated with the pilot being incapacitated. Gets better. They go on to say that it could have been a bird strike or it could have been a drone, a drone. 
in the rural Ohio hills, miles from nowhere, at six o'clock in the morning, in the snowy and icy weather. Survival Flight posits that there was lots of criminal activity in this area. The criminal activity? Timber thieves. And the local landowners may have been protecting their property by flying these drones to spy on these timber thieves. Or it could have been a criminal who shot the helicopter down. Criminals may have shot the helicopter because they thought the helicopter was law enforcement. This is all documented in Survival Flight's investigative report. Sure, it could have been all of these things, but there is no evidence to support this. Survival Flight's only reasoning for even bringing up the criminal activity is because the park ranger who walked them down to the accident site made a side comment about criminal activity in the area and people stealing trees. And finally, Survival Flight again says that because Jennifer was super qualified and the aircraft had all the technology, especially the HTAWs with color changing maps, that it would be impossible for her to fly the aircraft into the ground and that she must have been incapacitated. What about the female pilot down in the Lee County crash down in Florida? Her HTAWS was alarming and changing color and she still flew the aircraft right into the Gulf of Mexico. What about Kobe Bryant's pilot? That dude had five times the experience as Jennifer and he was flying a badass Sikorsky S-76 with an autopilot and he still flew that thing right into the ground after entering double IMC. And either way, I find it hard to believe she was incapacitated because the data shows that she pulled massive collective pitch eight and three seconds before the impact happened, which was documented in the ECU data as overtorque events. Whew. Well. What did the NTSB conclude? They determined that, quote, the probable cause of this accident was survival flight's inadequate management of safety, which normalized pilots and operations control specialists non-compliance with risk analysis procedures and resulted in the initiation of the flight without a comprehensive pre-flight weather evaluation leading to the pilot's inadvertent encounter with instrument meteorological conditions, failure to maintain altitude, and subsequent collision with terrain. Contributing to the accident was the FAA's inadequate oversight of the operator's risk management program and failure to require Part 135 operators to establish an SMS or safety management program. Now I'm sure it has happened before, but this is the first first time I've ever seen a helicopter EMS crash with a probable cause of the crash happened because the culture here was unsafe. Around the world, and especially in the United States, becoming a flight paramedic is one of the peaks of the profession. Same things for flight nurses. These medical crew constantly find themselves in situations where their patients are in critical condition and the nurse or paramedic has to think critically and make life-saving decisions. And they have to do it many times in the back of a tiny aircraft with a jet engine roaring above their ear and oftentimes with night vision goggles. On. Many of them perform this job for little to no extra pay over what a paramedic or nurse might make working on an ambulance or in the hospital. And for nurses, it's oftentimes a lot less than they might make in the hospital, but they do it because they love it. But they need to be in a safe environment to do so. It is not right that their lives can be jeopardized because some boss is pushing everyone for more flights, or because a pilot is disregarding their opinions, or because they are being sexually harassed and are afraid to speak up. These paramedics and nurses, just like the pilots, are professionals at what they do and they are 100% crew members. So why did Jennifer take that flight? Because survival flight thought it was okay for pilots to hot seat and just jump in a running aircraft and take off. Because survival flight was okay and encouraged their RAs to be pencil whipped and just made up. Because they relied too heavily upon the HEMS tool and did not routinely look at MEDARs and air meds and pirate. Because even if the paramedic and nurse were nervous when taking this flight, they were probably even more nervous about speaking up and catching retaliation on the backside. Because survival flight did not consider the paramedic and the nurse crew members. Because survival flight did not properly train their pilots in the actual aircraft that they would be flying in. But most importantly, Jennifer took that flight due to poor leadership at the very top of survival flight. The culture there told her that it might be easier to take this flight without checking the weather than it would have been to catch the wrath on the backside should she have turned it down. And that is tragic, and it is not her fault. If you have a story you want me to investigate, please let me know in the comments below. I've got myself a cool Patreon page now, so if anyone ever wants exclusive or early content, please check it out in the description below. Please stay safe, follow the science, and take care of each other.